Well, welcome to church this morning. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Evergreen, and uh, it's my pleasure that I get to share scripture with you uh, today. And so I'm going to ask if you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been working through the book of 1 Peter, Peter's letter to the exiled Christians in Asia Minor, and we've been uh, going verse by verse through this. And last week, Uh, we were challenged by Peter's words. Because in his words last week, he talked about us submitting to authority. And so he's going to keep with that theme. Now, one of the beautiful things about working through the Bible, uh, working through a a book in the Bible, is that I don't get to skip things. So I don't get to like look at it and go, oh, I don't like that passage. That's not going to make people happy. And so uh, I don't get to skip stuff. And so that means that I have to preach on obscure passages that many people often think mean nothing to their faith or to their life. And this morning's passage could quite possibly be one of those. But I'd like to help to show you just how much it actually does apply to our lives. Last week, as I said, we went through a difficult teaching because it focuses on, about how, on how we're supposed to go about living in Christ within an environment that is hostile to what Christians believe. And we're basing a lot of this on our natural disposition that we have as human beings to fight back, to make our views heard and to have our ways become the ways of society around us. And in our passage today, Peter is going to continue to address this theme, this theme with these Christians in Asia Minor on how to live in this hostile environment. And the next few passages, actually the next few weeks, are specifically going to address very specific people within the church. And these specific people have found freedom in Christ. Peter is now going to address for these folks, how they should live within this newfound freedom. Often, a passage like we're about to read is a passage that we read and we write off because we say, this isn't relevant to us. You'll know what I mean as we start reading it. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18, it says, You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. So right away, a lot of us shut down and go, well, that's not for me, right? I'm not a slave, especially when we think in the context of American slavery, which I'm going to show you later is nothing like first century slavery. But he says, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Remember the context that he said all of us have to do that with respect to the government and to authority. He says, do what they tell you. Not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. That's awesome. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for, patient, for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Now listen to this. He's going to give us a description of Christ, what those steps look like. He never sinned and never deceived anyone. Has anyone ever deceived someone? 
to get your way, to get things heading in your direction. What well, says Christ never did that. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right, but as by his wounds you were healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you've turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. Now, in first century, the time that Peter's writing this letter to a church, now this letter would have been read out loud to the churches from start to finish, not in chunks like we do. But in the first century, there were two classes of people. There was the free and there was the slaves. Now, because of Christ, all of this changed within the church. So this is the context in which Peter's writing this. We see this dramatic cultural mindset change that happens early on in the book of Acts, actually. If we look at the early church and what happened after Acts chapter 2, we see this transition into this freedom that Scripture's talking about. And instead of a society norm of having separate classes... The church, united under Christ, knocked down the barriers of classes and became what the Bible says as one. Now, this oneness is, is not something that I think we completely grasp in the North American church today. This oneness, it's expressed all throughout the New Testament. And in Acts, we see this expression happen in community. They become distinctly different than the world around them. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Anybody that goes here on a regular basis knows that I read this passage all the time, and I'll just keep reading it until we actually get it. All the believers, it said. This is after Pentecost happened. In other words, keep in mind, disciples don't get it. They don't understand. They're kind of lost. Even though they knew Jesus in the flesh, they don't get it. Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes, now indwells in their hearts, and it says this is what they did. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Those are great things to devote your life to. Now listen to what happens when you devote your life to this thing, these things. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great swaying. (laughs) With great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Now, this is now what happened because of all of that. So you see this creation of oneness, having uh, uh, some translations like the NIV say everything in common. It says, in each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Don't miss that connection. Don't miss that connection where classes push us away from Jesus Oneness brings us toward Jesus. 
And we see Paul express this in the book of Galatians as well with this really profound passage in Galatians 3, verse 28. Listen to what the apostle Paul says. He says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This posture of freedom in Christ that he's talking about through this oneness is incredibly countercultural, especially in the first century. And, and whenever you begin to live differently, how many people know this? When you begin to live differently than the culture around you, you will often experience resistance. You'll have problems. And that's kind of what Peter's addressing here is that he's worried that these Christians who are being persecuted in Asia Minor, he's worried that they will begin to blend into society, that rather than living their life in their identity in Christ, they'll just begin to live their life in a way that will get them away from the persecution that they're suffering. He's worried that they're going to begin to blend. And when you blend into society, you become useless for Christ. Isn't it ironic that this freedom that he's talking about, this life of living as equals, this equality that the scriptures bring, isn't it interesting that that is met with resistance in culture? In our passage today, Peter addresses a group of people who have received a newfound freedom, but Peter feels it's important to give them some guidance on how to live within this freedom. The freedom that we, the way we describe freedom is not the way that scripture describes freedom. And I don't want you to miss the tension. There is a deep amount of tension in this passage and the, and the passages that we're going to deal with next week because we're going to deal with wives and husbands. And there's always tension there. But there's a tension within the community that's knocking down these barriers of social classes. This knocking down of barriers, this oneness, it creates a huge tension between the community and the community around them. And living in society, specifically, that is thriving within their economic structure as classes that are separate from one another. Now, unfortunately, it's this passage, it's a passage like this, that historically have been used to endorse practices in society that scripture and particularly Jesus would never endorse. I'm gonna give you a, a hermeneutical principle. You would normally pay thousands of dollars to get this, but instead we're just gonna ask for your tithe. That's funny. <laughs> Come on. I gotta get you swaying a little more, get you loosened up. Hermeneutics is Bible interpretation. It's based on how we read the Bible and how we interpret the Bible, okay? Here's a little hint. Whenever you read a passage in Scripture and it doesn't line up with the character and nature of Jesus, you need to go back to the drawing board. So if you think that the Bible endorses something that Jesus himself would never endorse, you need to go back to the drawing board. And this passage is a passage that has been quoted for centuries in the Christian church that points us in a direction that's not Christ-like. 
The Christian church, folks, is really guilty of taking scripture out of context and we read a passage and determine its meaning from a few verses instead of looking at it within its full context of the entire Bible. That's, I call them pluckers, right? People who pluck things out to make the Bible say that they want it to say. That's not how you read scripture. Actually, folks, I would go as far to say that that is an elementary reading of Scripture that has caused a lot of pain in our world through the church. So let me be clear about something right off the bat. The New Testament never endorses anything that causes the separation of classes in society. That is not a New Testament thing. The New Testament preaches oneness through Christ. So in the context of today's passage, the New Testament authors are not endorsing the act or the institution of slavery. We are all one in Christ. There is no classes, no separation of color, gender, or race. And the Christian church needs to repent from being any part of causing separation within the church or within society. Because it's not in the nature of Christ. Now, Peter in this passage is dealing with this tension of these people that he calls slaves, of them finding a newfound freedom in Christ, and the tension about how you go about living that way. And now, this is, this is a, like a crazy, amazing concept that those who were oppressed are now free. You know that's what scripture is often all about, right? Those who are oppressed are now free because of the work of the cross. But their entire society and economy was run through slavery. So if the church was to tear down this economic structure because of its freedom in Christ, it would cause all of society to crash. And if this happened, the church would lose any influence it had on, a, on society to share Christ. So in the context of the first century slavery, slavery was not what we think. We automatically, we hear the word slave and we automatically think like North American culture of slaves. Slavery in the first century was nothing like American cultural slavery that we would know. Let me read you uh, an excerpt from uh, a historical book, actually, that is talking about the first century and how slavery actually functioned when Peter was writing this letter. So these are not my words. I'm reading from a book to you. Slavery was a diverse institution in the ancient world, altering itself from one culture to another, yet the Roman and Greek worlds anchored their entire economic system in this institution. Some have estimated that one-third of the population in urban areas was slave population. In both worlds, especially the Roman world, which is the context of Peter's letter, this is happening in the Roman Empire. Slavery was not usually a permanent condition of life. So we automatically think American slavery, right? You're never going to be free. You're oppressed. You're a slave. But slavery in the first century didn't mean forever. It was not 
a permanent condition of life. He says, rather, it was a temporary condition. Now listen to this. A temporary condition on the path toward freedom. Interesting. Many ancient people voluntarily chose to be slaves of a Roman citizen so that upon being granted manumission as a result of either a good behavior or adequate savings, they could become full Roman citizens. There's your key. It was their pathway to freedom to becoming a full Roman citizen. And becoming a Roman citizen was a big deal. Paul quotes that he is a citizen of Rome, and that's held as a big deal. And so slavery is this actual pathway to freedom to becoming a Roman citizen. The author says, in fact, it's entirely possible that one reason the Christians, uh, the Christians endorsed Christian slavery to be, endorsed, told Christians to be submissive and obedient was that by living obediently, they could be set free. So link obedience to being set free. Now, listen to this. To be a slave was not to be assigned to a specific, especially low-class station in life. Slaves had the status and power that was connected to their masters. If their master was powerful, they indirectly inherited that power too. Thus, it was desirable at times to be a slave. This is about to blow your mind. I just have a feeling about that. I might have been through this once. The tasks characterizing slavery were immensely diverse, and we must avoid the notion that all slaves were manual labor servants. Doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, which that, that's understandable, Agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains all comprised the slave population. Let me read that list for you again. Think of this in our societal context compared to their societal context. Doctors. <laughs> Doctors in the first century could be slaves. Teachers. Can you imagine that union meeting? <laughs> Writers, accountants, which is understandable, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains all comprised the slave population. Slavery in the first century was nothing like what you think it was. Another reason why you need to learn to read your Bible you see, many slave owners treated their workforce with dignity and respect. Their workers were considered part of their family. Now, there were owners that treated their workers poorly. And the Apostle Paul addresses this uh, often in his writings. The Apostle Paul alone addresses slavery in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He addresses slavery in Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, the entire book of Philemon. He was a slave and it's written to him. Titus chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 6. All of these passages call on slaves to honor their employer, 
and their owners to treat their slaves with love and respect. Now, Peter doesn't address the owners in the letter, but specifically addresses the slaves themselves. Now, there is some research around that to think that maybe the church in Asia Minor that Peter is addressing is mostly made up of slaves. But historicity tells us that, historicity is a fancy word for history, history tells us that, uh, that this church actually would have been made up of both owners and slaves, but there may not have been an oppressive issue happening in this church. Now, that is also crazy wild. All classes of society gathered in one place was unheard of. That's the barrier that the church overcame. The slaves are to submit to their masters, he said, with all respect. They're to do what they are asked to do, even if their master is not nice about it. This is the instruction that Peter's giving. Peter says, God will be pleased if you patiently endure unjust treatment, but if you're being disciplined because you have done wrong, you need to accept it and become a more obedient servant. Peter tells these slaves that even though they have found a new freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean you won't suffer. As a matter of fact, expect suffering in life, he says, and patiently endure it. He says, by enduring it, you are following in the steps of Christ, and all Christians are called to do good. The only path to doing good is by following in the steps of Jesus. He gives us the example of how to live in the tension of society. Jesus is the one who gives that example of how to live with this intention, with this tension in our society. Listen to how Peter describes what the footsteps of Jesus look like. He said he never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd the guardian of your souls. Folks, what he just described there is so countercultural, it isn't even funny. It's so against their culture and our culture. Because our natural disposition as fallen human beings is to deceive others so that we can get our way in life. It's to retaliate when we've been wronged. All of this is a reflection of how much we don't actually believe in God's sovereignty. It's interesting to me because we say that. We say the Lord is sovereign. Sovereignty means that he's over all and in all. That he, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth and that he breathed life into us. And so if you believe the Genesis account of creation, you're claiming to believe in his sovereignty, that he is actually the one in control. And he says that our natural disposition is what actually reflects us not believing that God is the one who's in charge. 
that God is the creator of all the heavens and earth, and the disposition is driven by original sin. And Peter addresses this in verse 23. He says, Jesus was wronged. Jesus suffered at the hands of false accusations. But what did he do about it? When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, he had every opportunity in the world to get out of going to the cross. He agonized in the garden to the point that he shed blood, sweated blood, about his call to go to the cross. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, was able to make his own decision of whether he was going to follow the path that the Father had him on or whether he was going to bail. So when he's in front of Pontius Pilate, Pilate actually politically does not want to kill him. Jesus has every opportunity to get out of this, and Pilate offers him every opportunity. And what does he do? Nothing. He was wronged, and he suffered at the hands of false accusations. Yet instead of doing something about it, taking things into his own hands, because he didn't deserve to be treated like this, he did nothing. He left his case in the hands, the scriptures say, of God. Why? Isn't that weird? Like, am I just supposed to sit back and go, yeah, whatever, God's got it. It's all good. It's okay. It's fine. I know I'm suffering. It sucks. I'll just take it. The reason the scriptures say this is because God is the only one who will truly bring justice. You see, we're not capable of bringing untainted justice justice to the world. Only God will truly bring justice, and we need to believe and trust in the promises that he has made. Peter tells us that these slaves in this context, that once they were like lost sheep, the fact that the scriptures call us sheep is really funny, because sheep are crazy stupid animals. They wander around aimlessly. They fall in holes and they're like looking around. It's like me playing Halo with the youth group. I thought I was like, I fell in a hole. I fell in a hole. And the whole youth group standing around me like with their men. I know this is a really violent game and none of you Christians actually play it, but I do. And I'm standing there looking at a wall like this. Going, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. I can't get anywhere. I'm like a lost idiot sheep playing a video game. The fact that scripture calls us sheep at all really cracks me up. He says we're lost sheep, the kind of sheep that didn't know their identity, the kind of sheep that would lash out at others that would try to bring justice on their own. But now in Christ, you don't have to be this kind of lost sheep. He says you now have a shepherd to lead the way. And this shepherd, he gives a specific role for that shepherd to guard your soul, which is far more important than this messed up life in a sinful world. So Peter gives these instructions to the workforce of the first century, following in the footsteps of Christ, he says. But how on earth does this apply to us today? Because 
We're all free. We're not slaves. So how does this possibly apply? Well, let me ask you something. And I want your participation in this. In the first service, they really struggled to participate in this. When I first asked this question, no one put up their hand. So we had a whole room full of unemployed people. How many people are employed? Now, some of you are employers and some of you are employees. In the context of this passage, they're talking about the workforce in the first century culture. Which means that everything in this passage applies to anyone who works. Anyone who's in the workforce. The slaves that Peter is addressing are this workforce and they're the ones driving the economy. And the workforce of the day were set free because of Christ. So how do we use our freedom to walk in the footsteps of Christ rather than the self-centered ways of self-sufficiency? We apply this passage to our lives and it's crazy countercultural. You see, Peter sets the stage for this in the passage above when he calls us to respect authority. We're to respect authority in our life. This means our boss. Can you imagine? Like, what do we do? You know, when the temperature changes in our office, we file a grievance with the union. Okay, so what I've done is I've drawn three basic principles because we love, we love this, right? We like lists and we need three things, right? A fancy poem and three points and we're good to go. What a preacher. So this is what I'm going to give you, exactly what you want. In the, here's, the, here's the first point. This is what this passage is teaching us today. In the workplace, we need to have, as Christians, the best work ethic ever. Like, we need to be the greatest workers on this earth. And we need to be known for our kindness, our loyalty, and our honesty. Now, I've been an employer. I have staff that work for me now. And I'm watching very closely how they react to this. <laughs> I do not want to hire the person who's filing the grievance about the temperature of their office. Now, I'm just using that as an example. If that's deeply convicting you, well, email Andrew. <laughs> who I want to hire is someone who has awesome work ethic. Somebody who works for Christ, who, who puts their everything into what it is that they're tasked to do. I want to hire somebody who is kind to others. But I also want them to be loyal to the organization. And in order to be loyal to the organization, there needs to be a little bit of honesty. So from an employer's point of view... I should be wanting to hire Christians. From a pastor's point of view, not really. You see, the way that we function in the workplace, these are the things that show others Christ. Unless you work in the Christian bubble that I do, 
where you just work with complaining Christians all the time. You work with people who don't know Christ. And so the way that you behave, your work ethic, your kindness or lack thereof, your loyalty or lack thereof, and your honesty or lack thereof is what determines whether you're showing others Christ or not. And yes, you might have a boss that causes pain and suffering. This is when you walk in the footsteps of Christ. Do you know the passage that is a cross-reference to that passage? Is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. So listen to what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so this is a parallel passage. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Aren't we all about our own way? Don't we structure most things in society to be about our way? And about us being right. This is what he says that counters that. Take up your cross and follow me. You see, this passage undergirds all of our lives as Christians. We give up pushing our own agenda and we take up the agenda of the cross. Jesus died so justice could be the future reality. There's nothing we're going to do to bring justice that isn't saturated in sinfulness and self-centeredness. Now, one correction I do want to give, a few people came up to me and said, does that mean we don't have to do social justice? No, you should be doing social justice, but you don't do social justice for you. You do it for others. So you're not aiming for your rights, you're helping someone else to have rights. And that's motivated by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not motivated by you being important and special to say, look what I do. So we're called to trust all things in God, he says. We have to place this trust in God and trust his promises. And this means that in our lives we may suffer, we may be wronged, but we take the path of the cross and show our boss or our co-workers in the workplace the character of Jesus, not the character of someone fighting to be right. This is incredibly countercultural, and it will make you uncomfortable. You'll not be happy about this. You're going to fight back about it. I do. And that moves me to point number two. Another way to combat this in our lives is our personal lives and our work life. In our personal lives and our work life, we need to suppress our deep need to be noticed and to be important. So as Christians, we need to suppress our deep need to to be noticed or to be important. Anybody ever had like a project you worked on and someone else took the credit for it? And then you're like all upset and you go storming into the boss's office and you're like, I actually did that. Can I have a raise? It's like this deep need to be noticed, to get credit for things. Instead of just working for the Lord, we're working for self. When you work for the Lord, often self benefits. But when your main motive is self, it often leads to problems. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 says. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God. He's talking about Jesus as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. 
Now, if I were divine, which I could be, that was funny. (laughs) If I were divine, which we all know I'm not, would I be willing to give up that privilege? It says, instead, he gave up. So he didn't cling to his equality with God. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross, on a cross. Therefore, so this is the result of that posture. God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that the that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when we take the posture of Jesus, God elevates us to the highest place of honor. But when we try to elevate ourselves, it doesn't please the Father and it causes us to be centered on self rather than Christ. You see, when we deeply need to be important and notice, we are taking the focus off of Jesus and putting the focus onto ourselves. That leads me to the third, and I think that this is the key. Our lives should be built on our identity in Christ. Listen to what Scott McKnight says in his commentary on this passage. Scott McKnight is a scholar that I've quoted before, Uh, a northern seminary in Chicago. He says, Peter's call to Christian slaves is to follow Jesus, endure injustice, and find their identity in God's acceptance. Hear that? Find your identity in God's acceptance and his final vindication of what is right. Well, I would not say this is the proven method for every imaginable situation in today's world. I am convinced that churches today need to hear the message about the cruciformed nature of Christian existence, especially since our litigant society is wasting far too much of its energy in defending personal rights. Christian existence is spending too much time defending our own rights. Folks, this is really countercultural. This this has probably got the hair on your back because we all have it. Just stirring. Right? It's probably standing up right now because you're like, no, I'm all about having rights. I need to fight for my rights. My rights. My. My. You hear what I'm saying? My. Me. What was the posture of Christ? See, Christians give up their rights to have rights. And I don't expect you to like it. Instead, we trust our lives to God's sovereignty. We live within our identity of being in Christ, and we live our lives pointing people to a cruciform, which is just a fancy word for a cross-centered life. We live what the cross accomplished. And we live the path to the cross, which is walking in his footsteps, which is picking up our cross and bearing it. 
worship team can join me. This means that we live through this lens of the cross, not the lens of societal rights. Because society, especially in North America, is about classes. It's not about oneness. And society, through social rights, will never bring oneness. Only Christ can bring oneness. 